0: Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. One of the traditions we have in my house at Christmas is lighting the advent wreath. We light one candle each of the four weeks leading up to Christmas and then we light the middle candle the fifth candle on Christmas Eve. It's just one way we celebrate Christ's coming. Another tradition we have is that after lighting those candles, we get to open one present. So this present is from my grandma Alice. She is a great gift giver, and she also manages to wrap gifts up in really unique ways. So let's see what this one is. It's a really good wrapping paper. It's Continental Electric 120-watt hand mixer. But I think there might be something else inside. I like small white boxes. Wow, it's a beautiful pair of earrings. Now, my grandma has one just like these that I've always admired. This is really, really unexpected. You know, sometimes it's the unexpected gifts that are really just what we wanted and sometimes they're just what we need
1: good morning this morning i'd like to read to you the story of april you see april received a very unexpected gift that proved to be just the thing she needed to get her life moving in a different direction there are many words you could use to describe me as a child the little one the cute one the quiet one. As the youngest of five kids I learned to play the game well. I kept my head down, my mouth shut, and my eyes and ears open. I watched my older siblings and learned from their mistakes. I let people confuse my silence for complacence. I would nod and smile at my parents requests and then do whatever I wanted. I managed to follow all the rules while secretly getting into plenty of trouble. I was friends with the cool kids, the jocks, and the band geeks all at the same time. I was just as likely to be found at a house party as at a church service. I was pretty good at everything I tried, but not so good that people would expect too much of me. I was involved in much, but truly committed to little. In other words, I had mastered the fine art of running in all directions, but going nowhere. I was 21 when I finally stopped running. I'd like to tell you that I found my purpose, or I just got tired of not living up to my potential. But really, I was slammed to a halt by my own poor decisions. There was nowhere left to run, nowhere left to hide. I was unemployed, alone, and pregnant. After picking myself up, my first step was to reach out to my sister. I'd been living with her before my boyfriend and I decided to move in together and play house, even though we weren't really married. I hoped that now, with a baby on the way, she'd let me move back in. Not only did she welcome me with open arms, she took care of everything I needed during the final months of my pregnancy. Ava arrived a week before Christmas. She was literally born, arms first, diving out of the womb, as if to say, ready or not world, here I come. Ava was just what I needed to get my life moving in the right direction. I now had a reason to start making good decisions. I was finally committed to providing for her and to making choices that would benefit the both of us. While the first four years of Ava's life haven't been easy, they've definitely been instructive. I'm learning how to be a provider. I relocated to a lower cost of living area to make sure the money I earned stretched further and I worked my way up from file clerk to owner of my own insurance agency. I'm also learning how to pick my parenting battles. Does it really matter if your three-year-old wears a tutu and swim goggles to daycare? If the only thing your toddler wants to eat for every meal is hot dogs, grapes, and ranch dressing, do you consider it a win because at least she's getting three out of the four food groups? I've even started to ponder why I'd been running for so long, running from responsibility running from expectations, running from pain, even running from God. As a teenager, I'd committed my life to God, but after my parents' divorce and my first heartbreak, I'd begun to choose things that were fun and instantly gratifying over the things that were life-giving and glorifying to God. Even when I was making bad decisions, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I just didn't want to admit it. God let me think I was running as fast and as hard away from him as I could. Fortunately, sometimes God's gifts, God's blessings, come in really strange wrapping, like Ava, my three-foot-two rambunctious, clever, beautiful, unexpected gift from God. She is the best possible outcome of my poor decisions. And hey, I've even started running again. This time, I'm running with purpose. I'm running toward God and embracing all I am in Him.
2: Good morning. I'm really glad that you're here. I feel like I want to say that to every one of us individually. I have prayed over today as much as I have any service in recent memory, and I don't believe you're here by accident. We are looking today at what I think is the most epic passage in the entire Bible. That's right. I said it. You can only say that when you do this passage. I think this passage its a reminder to those of us who have a connection with God. And I, I have prayed that today would be a powerful reminder to you and I. I think it's also a challenge to those of us who are standing at a distance. So if this morning you're standing at a distance from a connection with God, if you've never had a real sense that, you know, I get it boy I've, I've prayed for you this morning we're going to do a, a few things in this passage there there are three wow moments as we walk through this passage and then there's one moment of what in the world is he saying and so we're going to spend time we're going to threaten to be boring but the passage is so epic uh, i don't know if we can make this boring We're just going to work our way through the passage, and as we get to each wow moment, I'll stop and talk about it. As we get to the what in the world is he saying moment, I'll stop and tell a little of what I think is going on there, and all in all, we're going to be changed. I'm going to be reading this morning from the ESV version. I usually read from the NIV version, and you know... If you're not really familiar with Bible translations, there are lots of English translations, and they're all good. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and it's been translated into you know most of the world's languages, and that process is still going on. It's been translated many, many times uh, into English, and those translations are to serve us honestly, and they're usually done by fabulous committee of fabulous uh, New Testament scholars, that are really, really fluent with koine, that means time of New Testament Greek, and they translate them into us, and they're updated periodically. I want you to know, honestly, in my opinion, there are also as many English translations as there are because the Bible is the best-selling book in the world, and it's just another way for publishers to get money. They churn out these new translations, but still they serve us. We're reading from the ESV translation this morning again, not that that matters, but we're doing it because this is a really good translation of this passage, and there are a couple of translations of the NIV that of all translations that mess up one really important word. We're going to spend time on that one word this morning because it's one of our "Wow moments. And you've got to make sure that this is translated correctly in your translation. In fact, if it's not, don't read this chapter in your translation anymore. Have I set it up enough? Let's get some help here and let's pray. So how about some spiritual aerobics? Um, we're not going to stand today for the reading of God's word, which we often do because we believe that the Bible is unique and it speaks to us uniquely. But we're going to be working our way through this passage and we're all going to remain seated as we do. So for some spiritual aerobics as we get ready for this, Let's stand for prayer. So stand with me if you would. Father, I have been so moved by this story and this passage this week, and I pray that you would continue to communicate your glory to me and through me this morning. I have felt this week, Lord, like an old school of revivalist, I've wanted to scream at myself And God I pray that whatever passion is communicated this morning it would be your passion I pray that you would speak we can't get this if you don't show us this is frankly unbelievable unless you reveal it and I ask in Jesus name that you would do so in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to have it open. If you got one of those Bible apps, open it up to John 11. John is the fourth uh, biography of Jesus in the New Testament. It's going to be, you know, three-fourths of the way to the back of the book if you're not familiar with the Bible. John chapter 11, and let's dive in. So John begins, John was Jesus' best friend. And this is the last of the biographies that were written. So John knows that the other biographies have been written. And he's at the end of his life. So this is old man John speaking to those who have been his spiritual children and to us. And he's just recounting the story of Jesus. And here, in my opinion, the entire story of Jesus reaches its climax. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha it was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill so the family is Martha Mary and Lazarus the incident of Mary anointing Jesus with oil hasn't happened yet John hasn't even recorded it yet and in the trajectory of the story it hasn't happened yet But John wants to point it out here because he wants to make sure, and you'll see this here in this first couple paragraphs, John wants to make sure that we understand how much Jesus loved this family. And that's important. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, he says this in spite of the fact that he knows Lazarus is going to die. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we're going to learn later in this passage that Lazarus does die, and Jesus knows that he dies, that he's going to die. But through this incident, Jesus wants to say something very important about death. Death is not the end, Jesus wants to communicate. It's almost as if Jesus is saying here, look, death is not really death, or at least it's not the end, not if you're connected to me. Verse 5. Now Jesus, he tells us again, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here's John again reminding us that Jesus loves this family. He loves Lazarus. He's set us up for this next section. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that Lazarus was ill he stayed 2 days longer in the place where he was wait what wait wait, wait a minute what this is not what we expected to hear this is wow moment number 1 the word there is sub so. it really translates a greek phrase That is usually translated in the New Testament contexts and outside of the New Testament contexts, therefore. It's a conjunction. You know, conjunction is a word like and, then, but. Sometimes they tie things together, sentences together, casually. Sometimes they tie things together very, very purposefully. And when this phrase is used in the New Testament, it ties one phrase to another very purposefully. In fact, you've heard me say before, if you're part of Gateway, I had an old Greek professor that used to say, hey, when you're reading the Bible, you have to know what the therefore is therefore. So in other words, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore... When he heard that Lazarus was ill and what we expected is he grabbed up his loins and ran as fast as he could the two miles to Bethany. But instead what we read is he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's going on? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus wait? You would think he would want to comfort, perhaps even heal his friend Lazarus. But instead Jesus waits for his friend Lazarus, whom he loves, to die. He waits intentionally. Therefore, he waits intentionally for his friend to die. And John really is insistent that we get this point. Jesus loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and because he loved them, when he got the news that Lazarus was ill, he waited where he was until Lazarus has died. Because he loved them. If you've ever imagined that God allowed your sickness or your discomfort or your financial trouble or your calamity, you may be right. That's not always the case, but we find this kind of thing repeatedly in the Bible, and many of us have examples in our own lives. Some of you have heard my testimony of the period in my life when I was in my 20s, and I struggled repeatedly and over a long period of time with almost constant anxiety. I went to healing services. I prayed constantly, and I barely prayed about anything. I prayed constantly that God would help heal me. However, even if we've come to believe that God allows some difficulty in our lives, and look, it's generous toward Jesus in the extreme to call what Lazarus is going through difficulty. But even if we imagine God allowing some difficulty in our lives, we don't usually connect it to his love. But that's exactly what our brother John and Jesus' best friend wants to make sure we understand. He loves Lazarus and his sisters dearly. And because he loves them, he waits for Lazarus to die before he shows up. Because he loves them. Why? We get part of the answer in verse 4 already. When Jesus says, all of this is for the glory of God this whole ordeal will unfold in such a way as to glorify the Son of God. Jesus wanted his disciples and us to see God's glory because when we see God's glory, everything changes. The word glory here means greatness, sovereignty, majesty, awesomeness. In other words, the glory of God is almost like saying the real godness of God. And when we see that, everything is different for us. Literally, nothing is more important for us than seeing the glory of God. This is the reminder part and the challenge part for you. Think about it. If God is real, and if God really is the way Jesus reveals him to be, then there's no situation without hope. There's no reason to let worry overwhelm you. There's no reason to fear. Let me offer two random illustrations to drive this point home for us. I had the kind of connection with my mother that I'm sure many of you had. Some of you had unhealthy connections with your mom. But even in those connections, there was a, a dependence. And I had a wonderful mom and had a great connection with her. She cared for me. She was always the one that cleaned up my throw up and Held my head and gave me medicine and assured me that everything would be okay. And I have the distinct memory of being in college, my sophomore year in college, and I got the flu. I think it was the only time I was in college and I got sick. I got the flu and I felt awful. And I can remember at the worst of it, lying in my bed, my roommate moved out, he <laughs> didn't want to have anything to do with the flu. I can remember at the very worst of it, lying in my bed thinking, I want my mom I want my mom because my mom, had my mom come into the room, just come into the room, if I'd just been able to hear her voice, have her put her hand on my brow, I don't think I would, you know, the flu wouldn't have gone anywhere, but I would have known that I would be okay. What I needed was to hear from my mom what you and I most need is to understand and experience the glory of God. I remember years ago hearing a a guy (laughs) who pastored in Hawaii, and he was a pastor of a church in Hawaii, and, and he was a huge Cowboy fan. Apologies to all of you who are Redskins fans. And he would tape the games every Sunday, but the games on the mainland happened in Hawaii during the time that they were in church. So he could never watch the games. But it made him too nervous to watch the Cowboys games. And this was in the 90s when the Cowboys were really good. You know, 100 years ago when the Cowboys actually had a team. And on the way home, he would always turn to sports radio to find out who won the game. So he would hear who won the game on the way home, and it was usually the Cowboys. And then... He could sit and watch the game in perfect peace. It didn't matter if Troy Aikman threw an interception. It didn't matter if Emmett Smith fumbled the ball because he knew the outcome. What you and I most need is to see the glory of God because when we see the glory of God, we know the outcome. Everything changes Everything is different when we see and experience the glory of God in the face of all worry, in the face of all trouble, in the face of all pain. When we experience the glory of God, everything changes. The problem is that we don't believe this. We don't really believe that God is glorious and that He's on our side. We don't believe this story. If you're anything like me, you struggle to believe this story. We don't believe the glorious God loves us. Instead of our circumstances driving us to an understanding of God's great glory, we let our circumstances drive us to fear and doubt and anxiety and depression. Verse 7, after this, he said this to his disciples. So a couple of days later probably, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again. Jesus answered, verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him or with him. This is the, what in the world is he talking about, Mo? This is one of those weird Jesus things, says something like, What? And this is probably, would have been a little clearer for the disciples than for us, this is probably a proverbial saying that would have been in currency in Jesus' day. And here's what I think he's saying. Jesus is saying, you know, the daylight, when he says there's 12 hours a day, it's effectively, they, they didn't have watches, so they weren't by the 15 or 10 minutes like many of you live. But they, you know, a day was basically 12 hours, and basically there's 12 hours of night, and you that's the way they marked time. So what Jesus is saying is, and, and one more comment, it, you know, in the day, you, can see, you know where you're going. You, you can see. And at night, you, you, that's when you're likely to stumble on a, a rock or a, a branch or something in your way. And what Jesus seems to be saying here is, look, guys, I know what I'm doing. I'm not about to stumble into something. I'm not making this up. I'm, I'm not making a mistake here. I'm following God's will. And this is God's will. I'm not taking unnecessary risks. I'm not out in the dark wandering around. I'm listening to my father. And this is going to bring him glory. And by the way, I know this will ultimately lead to my death. But that too is God's will. Both for me and for you. In fact, almost every time John has Jesus mentioned the word glorify the son he's referring to his death verse 11 after saying these things he said to them our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him the disciples who are often clueless think Jesus is suggesting that Lazarus is taking a nap the disciples said to him Lord if he's fallen asleep he's going to recover Uh, now Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep the disciples think that Lazarus is napping they don't know how Jesus knows this, but having seen what they've seen before from Jesus, I wouldn't doubt him either. But Jesus isn't talking about napping. He's telling gently that Lazarus is now dead. And then he supplies them an additional and final reason for why he has delayed to go see his friends. So now he gives them another part of the reason why he delayed. Verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake... I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellows disciples, okay, let's also go that we may die with him, and Thomas is either brave or he's a martyr. So now we get the full picture. I think we can all agree that a part of loving someone is giving them what they really need. Sometimes that means you don't give them what they want in the short run so that you can give them what they really need. I think we could make an argument that this is the heart of love. This is the essence of what it means to love someone. So here's Jesus allowing something terrible to happen to his friend Lazarus and to Martha and to Mary. Let's don't minimize their grief because it only lasted four days. During those four days, they were just as clueless And just as stumbling around in the dark as you and I are sometimes for 10 years grieving over those that we have loved. So the difference between four days, four years, 40 years doesn't make much difference on day three. So here's Jesus allowing something terrible to happen to his friend Lazarus and to Martha and to Mary because he wants his friend to see God's glory. And he wants them to believe. Jesus knows that this is what they really need an understanding of and a belief in God's glory will carry them through any and every circumstance with their faith and their future intact, and it will for us as well. Rick Warren is the pastor of one of the largest churches in America. He's also a best-selling author. He wrote Purpose Driven Church. Some of you have seen that. Some of you may not know that a, a couple of years ago, Rick's adult son committed suicide. So we know that Rick isn't just offering... Light spiritual platitudes when he says this. I don't have to know why everything happens because God is good. He loves me. And life on earth is not the whole story. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. She's in too much grief, I suppose. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I have no idea what Martha is thinking. Actual physical resurrection can't be part of her thinking here. I don't know what she means. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And then Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again. And and the resurrection on the last day, Martha clearly believes in a resurrection. Some Jews did not, some did. And Jesus said to her, Don't miss this. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. I am the resurrection. And the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that is Jesus' plaintive question to us this morning. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. Son of God, who is coming into the world. And here we get to the crux of the matter. Wow moment number two. You would have to be an idiot or a deeply disturbed, seriously, pathological liar or something that none of us have ever seen before or since to say what Jesus says here. I am the resurrection and the life. And I need to confess to you guys that often... I've said before here at Gateway, I'm a natural doubter. Often, I struggle to believe this. This is the crux of the matter for you and I. A friend of mine was in the hospital recently, a very good friend I've known for years. I went to visit him. He wasn't going to die. He was there for observation. I walked in, and he's got a heart issue, so they were changing medication and watching him. He's strapped up to machines. Lying in a hospital bed. Many of you have experienced this. Some of you are are much younger, have not. But this is a surreal moment. Uh, You walk in, and someone that you've known for many, many years, you've sweat with many, many times, someone that you've seen in the prime of life, and now here they are, two days later it seems like, lying in a hospital bed and there are wires connected to various parts of their chest and leg and they look, to say the least, vulnerable. And you can't avoid it. You walk in and you recognize, he's going to die. Hopefully not tonight, (laughs) but he's going to die. One day he's going to die. And so am I. (laughs) So am I. In fact, a hundred years from now, nobody in this room will be alive. Not one of us. Not even those of you who are 25 and you think you can take a bullet. You know in your head you can't, but somewhere deep inside, trust me, I was 25 once. You think you're immortal. You're not. We're all going to die. But death is not really death. Death is not the end if Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it's wild and woolly if Jesus raised himself from the dead. I mean, let's admit it. That's crazy if Jesus was actually raised from the dead. That means he is singular. He is unique. He is the Son of God and the world needs to hear it. But if he raised Lazarus, then he's going to raise us. Just as certainly And John certainly means for us to interpret these circumstances in exactly this way. And this changes everything. Verse 28. When she'd said this, you're the Christ, the Son of God. When she'd said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her, with Mary in the house, consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and they wanted to grieve with her and to comfort her. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, again, Mary, saying the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, underlying And greatly troubled, underline. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. This is wow moment number three. Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled. So let's back up a second and ask, what is Jesus feeling here? This word deeply troubled is not exactly what you might be thinking. Typically, this word is translated with something like irritated. It's often used in contexts of rebuke. The word troubled is the same word used earlier in chapter 5 where the waters of a pool are stirred up and rumbling around. Jesus is all churned up inside and this isn't exactly sorrow. Jesus is feeling angstified. He's feeling upset. He's feeling irritated. Why? This seems like Something of an odd response for Jesus to have. Some commentators suggest, and I think they may be right, that what Jesus is feeling here is Jesus is upset at death. Jesus is upset at the human condition. Jesus is upset and knows that this is not what the planet was supposed to be like. Other commentators have suggested that He's upset with something different, that He's upset here because of doubt. Because both of his friends, Martha and Mary, come to him and say, Why weren't you here? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And the Jews are going to say that same thing to him in just a second. And Jesus is irritated. What if it's both of these things? What if the world is not as it should be? And Jesus is is deeply disturbed by this. And what if Jesus knows that when we refuse to see the glory of God, when we refuse to choose belief and trust in Him, then we're relinquishing our one true hope and our sure foundation. All week long, I've wanted to scream at myself, seriously, God is glorious. You've got nothing to fear. You have no shame. You have nothing to lose. Trust Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. So let's... Decide together this morning. Let's refuse to admit middle ground. Let's press in on this or let's move away. This story may be unbelievable to you and I understand that. And I pray that God would break through to your heart and that He would show you His glory because unless He does, it cannot be seen. But for those of us who believe this story this morning, let's lean in fully. All in. All in. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Let me give you an audiovisual aid. Verse 36. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. You know, this verse is interesting to me. See how he loved him. I think this is often what you and I think of, or what the culture around us thinks of as spirituality. It's kind of a sappy sentimentality. Oh, see how sweet Jesus is. See how he loved him. Isn't that sweet? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man? I mean, we sort of thought he was the deal. Couldn't he also have kept this man from dying? I mean, where was he? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Can you imagine Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. I imagine John may have been close enough to hear these words. What is he thinking? I'm guessing he's thinking, what is this guy about to do? Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out of it. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I've heard this preached before as a illustration for you and I. You know, we come to Jesus all bound up. I think it's appropriate, don't you think? It's a beautiful image. We come bound up with baggage from our past, hurts the ways that we have responded to those hurts. And Jesus' call to you and I is, (laughs) unbind him. Unbind her. Let her go. So we're talking about gifts this Advent. Our God is a generous God. He gives us what we really need. Sometimes his gifts come in unexpected forms, right? Right? But He always gives us what we really need. He gives us an understanding of His glory and He builds in us a faith that will sustain us and carry us until we reach the time and place where we will be completely and utterly caught up in His glory. Nothing will separate us. There will be no mystery there. But for now, our generous and glorious God gives us hints and suggestions and sometimes outright glimpses into His Godness. And we're changed. We're changed. And we're able to say with our brother, the Apostle Paul, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, I thank You so much that we are being changed into Your glory. Your glory is reflecting through us ever-increasing glory. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not have a connection with you, I pray that you would use what we have prayed and what we have said, what we have sung, and your word, the glorious story of Lazarus, to raise them up, to call them out, to set them free. God, we acknowledge together that many of us this morning have shards of our grave clothes still wrapped around us. Hurts that we hang on to, habits of thinking, patterns of thinking that we cling to. We ask this morning in the name of Jesus that you would continue to set us free. And we thank you that because you are great and glorious. Everything is possible. And because you're generous, the best awaits us. Finally, Lord, we ask this morning for the courage, I guess, and the patience and the perseverance and the strength to maintain, to cling to you all in, even when your gifts come in unexpected ways even when we're tried and tossed and turned. I pray, Lord, that in it we would see your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, so his peace has come, as has his generosity. So one more time today before we leave, peace of the Lord be with you. That was better. Why don't you stand and pass Christ's peace to one another as you dismiss yourselves. Thanks so much for coming.